It's the ACDC Beyond the Thunder Podcast. With your host, Kurt Squires. It's time to rock. Welcome to the ACDC Beyond the Thunder Podcast, where we talk with extraordinary fans who've been influenced by this extraordinary band. I'm your host, Kurt Squires. Today, we'd like to welcome Mr. Eddie Trunk, American music historian, radio personality, talk show personality, and author, but best known for being host of several hard rock and heavy metal TV shows and for being a tremendous ACDC fan. Eddie, thanks for having us here in your lovely New Jersey home, a state where you were born and raised, Maybe we could start today by asking, what was the music scene like in the Eddie Trunk household growing up? Well, my, my parents were into rock music quite a bit. Uh, they, they grew up in the 50s, and they're very much into like Elvis Presley. Like My mom still worships Elvis to this day. For me, as a, as a kid, the first thing I really kind of, you know, I went through all the typical kid pop stuff in the 70s, Partridge Family, and, you know, those were the first records I really ever owned. And then the first rock band I ever heard was a band called the Raspberries, which is not, you know, really, there's really no connection to metal with the Raspberries. Although there was, they were very influential to a lot of people, like Motley Crue covered a Raspberry song. Uh, the Raspberries influenced Kiss to some degree, but I just was all in with them. Uh, and that lasted for like a year until a friend of mine walking home from school said, hey, there's this band called Kiss you should check out. And that was it. So Kiss to you is what ACDC is like to me. To me as a kid, when I discovered Kiss, it wasn't about trying, at that point, it wasn't about trying to discover other music. Any other bands were a threat to the throne of Kiss. Uh, and then, of course, you grow up a little bit and you realize, well, there are other bands. And that's when you, you know, that's the first sign was, okay, I'll take one of 200 Kiss posters down. I'll take one down and I'll put Aerosmith up. I'll, t- I'll take that one down and I'll put Black Sabbath up. I'll take that one down and I'll put the Highway to Hell cover up. Speaking of Highway to Hell, I distinctly remember growing up listening to the Beatles and Credence and a lot of Southern rock and even a disco era. And some Super Trap. I loved Super Trap. But then my brothers brought home ACDC's Highway to Hell. The cover alone stopped me dead in my tracks with Angus as the, the devil in a schoolboy uniform. And then when I put it on the turntable, I just I freaked out. I didn't know what I was listening to. So that was my ACDC moment. So, Eddie, what was your first ACDC moment? Very first ACDC record I got was Highway to Hell. And like a lot of different uh, bands, I discovered them because I won the album on the boardwalk at the Jersey Shore. <laughs> and it was one of those things where you put a quarter on a number, the wheel goes around, and they had all the album covers up. And you, you know, you, you picked, if you won, you picked whatever album you wanted. And there were a couple bands that I discovered that way because it was a way to get the album, you know, you, you were willing to take a little more of a chance. And if you went in a record store and you spent eight bucks or seven bucks, whatever a record cost back then, six bucks, you know, and if it sucked, you were like, oh, I got burned. 
So there's a couple bands that I discovered like that, and ACDC was one I remember vividly. The wheel came up, I won, and I'm just looking at all the album covers, and I see these demented guys <laughs> with Angus with the horns and everything and the cool logo. I didn't know much about the band beyond the fact that they were a rock band and they had a cool logo and the album cover looked cool and they looked a little bit crazy. And I said, you know what, I'll try that one. And uh, took it home and put, you know, dropped the needle and heard those opening riff to Highway to Hell. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then as that record went on and I started listening to the, the stuff on throughout that record, I'm like, oh my God, this is unbelievable. Killer you know, stuff. I, I really loved everything about the sound of the band uh, almost immediately. And, you know, the really heavier stuff, like Walk All Over You and stuff like that was just great. And then, right. you know up against stuff like, you know, Girls Got Rhythm or something that had a little more of a swing or a groove or whatever to it. Um, so I became a fan pretty quickly and then, you know, went back and discovered some of the earlier records like you do with any band when you come into it. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, Highway to Hell was a seminal album. It completely changed my musical landscape. Uh, in fact, that very album that my brother brought home when I was 10 years old was still with my brother when his house burned to the ground. Sadly, the next day he was rummaging through the house and there was nothing left uh, except that he found the Highway to Hell album in the basement, completely charred. It was burned in half, but you could see the label. And I have it framed in my house. And believe me, the irony was not lost on me that there are songs like Shut Down in Flames, Get It Hot, and Highway to Hell on there. So having brothers in the household was such an important part of my growing up, and especially with their influence of classic rock and Southern rock, um, and bands like Kiss. And I wanted to bring up Kiss because Kiss was one of those bands that took ACDC out on tour. And ACDC was not a band that you wanted opening for you. So that was a huge risk, and you got to give Kiss a lot of kudos for that, knowing that you're such a huge fan of that band. How are Kiss and ACDC similar to each other, and how are they different, Eddie? I think that in the earlier days when ACDC would have toured with Kiss, I think there was probably, on the surface, it was probably two very different bands with completely different looks and approaches to how they took the stage. But if you look a little more closely, there's probably a lot of similarities too. Both bands' music is, you know, it's not overly complex. It's, you know, kind of in your face, pound you with guitar, bass, and drums. Mm -hmm. So there's a similarity there. And there's a similarity also that both bands work extremely hard on stage right. and that they just don't stand there and, uh, you know, on a stool strumming their guitars, you know? So I think from a showmanship aspect, even though Kiss obviously was coming from a different place with the pyro and the makeup and the black leather and all that, both bands still had the same approach that you got to bring something more to the stage than just your instruments. And both of them clearly did that. Uh, and musically, you know, they were both rooted in, you know, uh, basic hard rock sounds and, and, and stuff like that. So there were definitely similarities, but there obviously were some very, very different differences. And if you look forward, to where we are now, clearly there's a lot of differences because ACDC is a band that uh, still values making new music <laughs> and putting out new records and for the most part is the core band, the guys that you want to see and the you know as close to the original members as we can get or the classic members that we can get. And uh, you know, Kiss has just evolved into more of a, a brand name 
and a marketing entity than anything. You know, it will put anybody in the makeup, will sell you a coffin or a cooler, and it's a whole different thing. Uh, whereas ACDC always was a working man's band and always appealed to that level. ACDC connects with their fan base on a totally different level. We're one of you. You know, that's always been the message. Uh, I agree, Eddie. Although I think it's safe to say ACDC's brand is on par with Kiss's brand at this point. I mean, you can't go anywhere without seeing ACDC pinball machines, ACDC monopoly boards, ACDC tequila, and and so on. Uh, it's almost like slapping ACDC logo on it and fans are going to buy it, me included. But there's a way that ACDC does it too that makes it different. No matter what ACDC is going to sell you or how big the marketing is, it still comes at you from a different place. It, it, you know, you, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but you just, you don't ever feel like the band's trying to get over on you. You don't feel like they're ever trying to jam anything down your throat. You don't ever feel like you see something that's like cheesy or tacky. It just seems like, you know, okay, here's here's a bunch of stuff with our logo on it. If you want to buy it, we'd, we'd love for you to. If not, no worries, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I see a lot of people walking around with, a, you know, a, a shirt for like, you know, with the album cover of Never Say Die from Black Sabbath on it. And I guarantee you, I look at those people, I know they couldn't name you one song on that record <laughs> or even what it is. Right. But it's a cool picture. It's retro. It's a cool thing. All the kids are doing it. I'll do it. But whether it's really some allegiance to the band or not, I don't I don't really know how accurate that is. The case of ACDC, I mean, they're so mainstream and crossed over to so many generations that they're probably one of the bands that actually people really could name you some of their songs that wear their stuff. I'm glad you say that, Eddie. One of the core reasons for doing ACDC podcasts, Beyond the Thunder, is because not many bands can claim to have infiltrated our culture quite like ACDC has. From actors to authors to athletes to military war heroes to comedians, and the list goes on and on and on. And for me, I feel a little bit vindicated because as a kid, I felt like that sole person waving the ACDC flag because you never heard ACDC in stadiums or on TV or in books or magazines. It was just unheard of. But now you can't go anywhere without hearing ACDC. Eddie, how have you seen ACDC influence the world around us? You know, it's astonishing to me how many people have been affected by ACDC's music on different levels that, you know, there's very few bands, rock bands, that have had that sort of massive crossover. It's it's People still think of and refer to ACDC as a metal band. <laughs> and it's still a term that's used with them. And people still regard them as that. I never did. I never saw ACDC as a metal band. No. I always saw them as a bluesy, hard rock band. As much of a supporter of metal as I am, I think calling them, just putting a name of a metal band on them really kind of sells them short. I yeah. think there's m- much m- they're much more than that. I agree. In fact, ACDC was never comfortable with the tag heavy metal. And it, I always think of the, the Who's box set entitled Maximum Rhythm and Blues. Well, I think of ACDC as maximum rock and roll. To me, metal band kind of conjures up leather and studs and, you know, where, where ACDC is not that either. Uh, and I just think that, you know, people who look at them as a metal band may be a little more astonished to, to, to see how many other areas they've touched. But if you look at them as just a really loud rock band like I do, mm-hmm. who's made the quality of music they've made as powerful as it is, I don't 
I'm not surprised at all that it's had the impact it's had on everyone from strippers to athletes to our brave men and women in the military who use that music to to charge them up. I mean, uh, you know, these guys are going into a dangerous spot and putting on something, you know, some sort of, you know, ACDC music to kind of give them a taste of home and also, you know, charge them up a little bit is is incredible. You're absolutely right, Eddie. And to be honest with you, there's not a lot of bands that can do that, right? There's there's not a lot of bands that have that sort of impact. And what's incredible about ACDC is that people are mining the catalog and finding more moments like that to to introduce songs. Like, I'm a huge sports fan, so the amount of ACDC you can hear on any given night in a basketball or hockey or football or baseball stadium is is incredible. Right. And then you'll you'll get thrown for a loop because everyone expects something like Hell's Bells, You Shook Me All Night Long. But then all of a sudden you start to hear Highway to Hell, Thunderstruck, you know, mm -hmm. which has become like a big one now. I think I heard Are You Ready the other day somewhere right. in the background of a, of you know a, a sporting event. It's almost like the music has become so timeless that it only takes like one stadium or arena somewhere in this country to say you know what, it'll be really cool to if we use the riff to walk all over you when the band comes out or when someone scores a first down. Yeah. Then it just catches like fire. But the one thread that links all of it is the groove. Any ACDC song, I mean, not many bands can say that, but there is that immediate groove. It's it's danceable to a degree. It's almost like a, you know, a danceable type of groove that's just hypnotic and it, all their songs have it people ask me all the time what the secret of their success and that is and i think that's really what it is that's what crosses it over it's not a cheesy groove it's 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 just a lock-in it's just the rhythm section just pounding you and everything over the top just this unique mix that's not rocket science by any stretch of the imagination but just the way it's played the players the yep. writers the way it's produced it all just comes together in this uh in this stew that no one, however many people have tried to copy it, and there are countless that have, can't come close to what ACDC has done. Yeah, there's this incredible engine room, and it's called Malcolm Young, Cliff Williams, and Phil Rudd. No one's going to top that groove. And the, the way they cite that groove comes from bands like Led Zeppelin and the Stones and the Who, and if you think about it, when those guys were growing up, they were listening to the singers in the 50s from Chuck Berry to Little Richard to um, Jerry Lee Lewis. And then there's this other groove that goes even further back, the great blues guys, Muddy Waters, B.B. King, and Howlin' Wolf, all these different eras of great groove. If you had to choose one era, Eddie, where do you think they get that groove from? I don't know where the groove comes from because even though ACDC certainly have a bluesy uh, feel to their music and there, you know, there's certainly those elements to it. You know, there's something else. There's something that they bring to the table. You don't listen to ACDC and say, oh my God, well, yeah, but that's so blatantly whoever. ACDC is the benchmark. Everything that came after it is, my God, that band is so ACDC. That's so true. And for someone like you, Eddie, who's been in the business since the early 80s, you've seen bands come and go and uh, and bands at the beginning of their career. How many bands can you name that have been completely influenced by ACDC? You know, me coming into the scene on a professional level, so to speak, around 83, 
um, with the radio show and then a few years later the record label and stuff like that. But speaking on the radio front, I would have to say I would be hard-pressed right now to tell you a band that I had run into and worked with that had not been influenced to some degree or had a tremendous level of respect for ACDC. Probably more so than any band I can actually sit here and tell you. I mean, there's, it, it's, it's almost impossible for me right now to tell you of another band who I've talked to other musicians about on radio or television that is as highly revered and respected and has had as much of an influence on music, even if it's not directly. What's amazing and astonishing about ACDC is not only you would expect hard rock and metal bands, but it's much wider than that. You know, you can talk to all kinds of artists and they love ACDC. I did a Thanksgiving dinner shoot for VH1 Classic once and it was this mix of artists on this dais that everyone from Debbie Gibson to Gloria Gaynor to Daryl McDaniels from Run DMC to this whole hodgepodge of people, they put us all together and did this Thanksgiving shoot. You know, inevitably, everybody knows and talks about ACDC and has just the utmost respect. Whatever music background they came from at the table, we could have had that conversation. It's astonishing the impact that the band's music has had and continues to have on uh, on other musicians and, and clearly the fans, obviously, first and foremost. Yeah, we've actually come across a lot of musicians who say something to the effect of ACDC is so simple that it's hard to play. So are there bands out there that have done a disservice to ACDC covers, or are there ACDC covers that you completely appreciate? Or if you're like me, do you just want to hear an ACDC original? At the end of the day, I want ACDC, no matter what. I mean, and even in radio, I mean, there's a million tribute records that come out and covers and this and that. And yeah, it's fun for a week or two to hear an artist's interpretation of something. But at the end of the day, you want the real deal. I mean, you're never going to go to that version of the song ever. But I thought that Twisted Sister did a really cool version of Sin City. About four or five years ago, Twisted Sister released a record of bands doing a tribute to them. So it was all these bands covering Twisted songs. And to end it, Twisted Sister did a cover of a band they were influenced by, and they did Sin City. And uh, I thought that was a really cool version. Oh, without a doubt. Dee Snyder has been tremendously influenced by ACDC. In fact, I think he told us, quote, ACDC literally changed my life. Let's talk about tribute bands. There must be hundreds of ACDC tribute bands around the globe. We talked to several of them, some good, some not so good. What's your feeling about tribute bands, Eddie? You know, I think tribute bands are great. A band like ACDC's catalog now is so huge that in a two-hour set, you're, you're never, nobody's ever going to get every song that they want to get. Clearly, a cover band's not ACDC, but if it's a way to expose other parts of the band's catalog and make people familiar with them, I think that that it's great. For me personally, I mean, I have no use to go see a cover band do You Shook Me All Night Long or something like that, because why? I, I, I would be more intrigued about bands that are going to really dig deep into the catalog and do some different things that you wouldn't hear all the time. I will say this about ACDC tribute bands. I love going to see them because they pull out those deep cuts that you're not going to hear at an ACDC concert. 
The cool thing is with what ACDC does, though, is they always throw a few nuggets in there for the for the hardcore fans. They really do. I think they did Gone Shooting um, when the remasters. They did a little. They did a show at Roseland in New York when the catalog was reissued by Epic that I was lucky enough to get into. I was lucky enough to be there as well, Eddie. And the songs they were pulling off Power Age, a true fan favorite, was so cool. And the really cool thing about it is that Brian, who I've talked to many times, uh, really respects and loves doing the Bond stuff. You know, he he he'd be happy to do a full set of that material. He he has complete respect for it, appreciation for it, and knows how important it is. Because there's a lot of people in that position that would say, well, you know what? Great, we got enough in the catalog of my period from back and black forward. Okay, throw one or two. But, you know, he, he gets the history of the band. He gets his place in the history. And he has total respect for that stuff. And, uh, and you know, I think it's really cool. I know. Poor Brian. The guy's been in the band since, what, 1980. And I think he's still considered the new guy. But actually, I feel fortunate as an ACDC fan to have come into the the timeline when I did because... I was able to appreciate not only Brian, but Bon equally. And Brian may have been in the band for umpteen years now, but I think Bon just, his material still holds its weight as well. But the one thing that I sorely miss is Brian Johnson's lyrics. And it's important to note that Brian hasn't written a single song since Blow Up Your Video in 1988. So by the time Razor's Edge came around, uh, Brian was going through a nasty divorce. The Young Brothers took over the sole responsibility of writing lyrics, and Brian has not received a writing credit ever since. So this must be driving Brian creatively crazy, not to mention less money in his pocket. But what is your take on this? How do you feel about Brian not being a part of this writing process anymore? My my impression of the whole thing is, you know, publishing and writing credits are really a, a tricky thing. I really don't know the answer to that. I, I really think it doesn't seem like it's anything that bothers Brian at all. Now, I don't know the nature of the business relationship. A lot of times that, that becomes an issue when one, one or two people are making all the money and nobody else is making any money because all the money's in publishing. But there's plenty of bands like Rush, for example, where it didn't matter who wrote the song or what part of it, it was an equal third split across the board. Right. That, does away with a lot of problems. You mentioned Twisted Sister earlier. That was a big part of their breakup. D wrote every song, sold a few million records. He's living in a huge house. The other guys are working day jobs. It's that wide of a problem. Uh, so, you know, clearly it's not a money issue uh, for Brian because I'm, you know, he's very comfortable without a doubt. But you wonder how much of it has to do with control and songwriting and things like that. I just personally think that Malcolm and Angus, it's not a secret. It's their band. They run the show. It, it marches to their beat and it's a beat that hasn't failed them in a long, long time. True. Um, I still think that there's part of Brian that thinks of himself as a new guy. Mm -hmm. uh, I know it's just hard. It's unbelievable to consider when you're talking like 30 years that he's been almost been in the band, I know. but, I, I almost think it's a case where Brian just feels like he's there, he's doing his job, he's fortunate to have the gig, he loves having the gig, he knows his role in the band, but he knows at the end of the day, Malcolm and Angus are going to call the shots. If they're going to write the songs, great. They're going to produce the records, great. They want to wait six, seven years before between records, He there's not, he'll sit in Sarasota and he'll wait to get the call. I talked to him privately many times uh, in the space between Stiff Upper Lip and Black Ice, and... 
he said, oh, I got the itch me son to get out on the road and to do something, whatever. He says, but when the boys call, I'll be there. That's all I can do. And, you know, never bitter about it. Never like, you know, complaining, just very matter of fact. He's like, you know, in the meantime, I'll race me cars. I'll do this. I'll do this. And he's not bitter or angry or anything. Um, when the boys feel like doing it, we do it. And it's as simple as that. And, and I think that that stems back from the fact that he knows, you know, that he came into what was, you know, a very successful band at the time, but obviously became much, much more successful going forward. I just love talking to that guy. I mean, I hang up the phone and I'm just, I just start laughing because he's just such a good person and he's just hysterical and he's so grounded. Like for a guy that's one of the singer in one of the biggest bands on the planet, right. he's just like the most regular guy. I interviewed all, I interviewed Angus, Malcolm, and Brian. One of the first interviews I ever did for VH1 Classic, at the time they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And these guys, you know, like, you know, they, they just, they're just like us. They don't care. Like, you know, mm -hmm. they were pissed they couldn't smoke cigarettes. They got to wear a certain sort of jacket there. They're like, you know, uh, what kind of rock and roll is the fucking Waldorf Astoria, man? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just so refreshing to see guys like that. And at that, TV shoot, I it had come up that I did a radio show in New York. And I remember Brian saying to me, um, where's your studio, me son? I said, oh, it's a few blocks up the street. I do the show on Friday nights. He's like, I'll come by and see you. Sure, mate, I'll come by and see you. I gave him the address. He's like, you tell me what time to be there. I'll come by. This is like a day after the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when everyone wanted to get to them. And uh, who knows, uh, is he going to show up? Whatever. Sure enough, the guy walks in. No entourage, no handler, no nothing. Brings wow. the bell, comes in with his cap on, sits down. What's happening, Eddie? What are we going to talk about? What's going on? And just the most, you know, regular guy. And I'll never forget, even stranger, uh, in a good way, was that next day he took a ferry to Staten Island and went to an Italian restaurant from Manhattan. And he had this tremendous meal. And I guess the, the, the staff was, it was like a pizzeria, but it was just good mm -hmm. food. And they guess some, couple, some people, a couple people knew who he was. They probably, you know, I'm sure they took care of him a little bit. And, uh, he was so flattered that this meal was so good and these people were so cool to me that I got a call from him the next day. And he said, he, he, he said, can I come on your radio show tonight again? I was like, yeah, of course. He's like, uh, cause I have to thank someone. It's like, what? And he wanted, the, the people in the restaurant told him that he had list, they listened to my show and they had heard him on it the night before. And he wanted to call because he knew they'd be listening to thank them over the air for Too the great cool. meal. That's Brian Johnson. Too cool. I mean, uh, just, it was just absolutely cool. So it's an honor for me to, to know him to the point where I can call him and, uh, and that we have, uh, you know, that, that he's just, just one of the guys. I mean, he just want, he'll shoot the breeze with you forever and talk about anything. And, uh, and he's hysterical. I mean, he just makes you laugh. Oh my God. That guy's a natural comedian. Going back to your early radio days, you described hearing another New York radio station play ACDC from A to Z, which basically blew your mind at the time and it changed your life in some way. Well, yeah. I mean, growing up in uh, New York, New Jersey market my whole life, Radio is, you know, it's not, New York being the number one market. I've always, as a, as a hard rock fan, felt it was the worst market for radio. Biggest market, but it was the worst. It was just no, nobody ever gave me the rock music I wanted on the radio. Um, 
and I in 1994, you know, this radio station came on the air. It was pretty funny. It used to be a classical station, and it literally at midnight flipped to become a hard rock station. And it was short-lived. The station only lasted for a few years. The station, the call letters, Q104.3, are, the station is still there. It's still the station. I, I still work there. I do my radio show from there in New York. It's my flagship station. But it's now a more mainstream classic rock station. When it came on the air initially, though, it came on as New York's Pure Rock. And it was a hard rock station. And it was just um, the way they signed it on was by playing ACDC A to Z, every song in their catalog. And when I heard about it, this was about a year before I actually started working there, I was very content working at my small station in New Jersey, doing my show, doing odd jobs to, you know, pay the rent or whatever. But, you know, there were a lot of people at that point that were drawn to the big city and getting on in market one and getting into New York, you know, New York is only 30 miles from the station I worked at in Jersey, but it's a whole nother universe in terms of reach in the Mm -hmm. radio market. But that was never the big appeal to me. The appeal to me was working at a station that was just, you know, really was more about what I was about. Yeah. So when I heard that this station was going to go on the air and people call me up and put on 104.3, you're not going to believe what you're hearing. I'm like, and I'm going through it, and I'm hearing song after song of ACDC, the entire catalog. In order, I'm like, yeah. this can't be happening. In New York, the number one market, this isn't a college station. <laughs> this isn't a station down the street. Yeah. This is another suburban station. This is a New York City station doing this. This is insane. That was the thing that inspired me for the first time in my life to w- try to move to another radio station. Uh, it wasn't the appeal of being on in New York City. It was the appeal of going to a station that was, that got it to the point that they opened their programming and their history launched by nothing but ACDC. I'm like, you know, that's, that's me. That's what I'm about. That's, that's awesome. cool. What's going to be next? You know, Black Sabbath A to Z. And then we're going to go to like, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I knew I wasn't going to get, uh, you know, UFO A to Z, but I could dream. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, you know, it was still, it was just cool to me. It, 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 it connected to me and I'm like, it just reeked of real rock. This is, it, this is no BS. It's going to be a real rock monster. And so how did you make that transition from radio to TV? We saw you a couple of times live on that metal show and it just seemed like a natural progression for you. After I kind of got on radio, I had always had my next hurdle was television. I knit. It's always you always set a goal for yourself, at least I do. And that was my goal is was to get on the radio. Okay, now I got radio on the biggest market. And now my show's syndicated to some stations. You know, what can I do next? Well, the next eye was can I do something on TV? I was under no illusions. I know I'm not Brad Pitt. You know, I know I'm not Ryan Seacrest. I wanted, I wanted, I knew that I was going to get by on what was up here and my passion and my connection to the audience. Um, so, I mean, to get the audition after having done a few guest spots was just great. And I went in and I, I auditioned for the job, uh, never having had seen the channel at that point because it was really in its infancy. It was in very few homes at the time. And, um, got called back a number of times, went through this process. They brought other people in, other people left. This one's right, that one's not right. And they kept just calling me and calling me and calling me back to the point where after about six months, 
they said, uh, you know, they said, we want to offer you a contract. We want you to come on as a full-time host for us, uh, interviewer, VJ, whatever. It was a dream situation. It was, it was phenomenal. Lasted for five years. And the first act I interviewed was ACDC. And, uh, I'll never forget them telling me, they said, would you be comfortable interviewing ACDC? And I was like, comfortable? Yeah, it would be phenomenal, you know? And again, at this point, I had already had a good run and, and, you know, in radio. So there was a, any artist that came in had some kind of overall f knowledge of me from my history in, in radio and what I had done. Uh, so, you know, to open, you know, to pop your cherry, so to speak, on television <laughs> with an interview with ACDC was beyond cool for me. And I'll never forget the, the, the guys came in and it was a couple of days before they went into the, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or Hall of Shame, as I call it. <laughs> and they, they came in and uh, we just had a great day that day. And I remember uh, the thing that struck me was that I'm 6'2", you know, two something, <laughs> right? you know, closer to three. And these guys were, are, were tiny in c comparison to me, especially. Right. And I just remember them being the coolest guys chain smoking cigarettes like I've never seen anyone do. And if you watch the interview, and I have it somewhere, but if you see, ever see this on YouTube or whatever, we were sitting on the set on these crates. And initially when we sat down, I was on the same size crate as they were. And it looked like this monster <laughs> with their kids. Like, <laughs> Angus, Malcolm, <laughs> Brian, how are you, kids? And... The funniest thing was, and I hate cigarette smoke, and I don't smoke at all, and I, I despise, I won't go anywhere where there's smoke. And uh, <laughs> these guys were just nonstop chain right. smoking, and I'm so much higher than them that it was just like, I was like a, just taking it all in. Like it was just like, it was like a vaporizer of ACDC smoke because <laughs> it was all coming from above. And but hey, it's ACDC. I'll I'll have to breathe their smoke and get get deal with sure. it for the shoot. Yeah. Uh, and then we we reposition the the crates a little bit, so I was you know a little bit more on a level playing field. But that's the first the, the things that I think of the two things I think of the most when that I look back on that tape is the fact that you know how much how much like I I probably weigh the three of them combined what they weigh <laughs> and the fact that it was just this nonstop cigarette smoke coming up into my face I know those guys probably consider cigarettes one of the major food groups so from there you went to that metal show it was on VH1 classic um, starting in 2008, had 14 very successful seasons the longest running show on VH1 classic anchored by yourself Jim Florentine, and Don Jameson. But I was really impressed with the fact that you landed an interview with both Angus and Brian, because that's something that they just don't do. They never do interviews for television. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, well, we, we uh, the folks said, uh, what, once, we, once we got picked up for that metal show, they said, we want you guys to do some other stuff for us as well. And great. And one of the things that they were doing was uh, an ACDC day to celebrate the release of Back Up, Black Ice. So the, they had said, we want to do this day and we want... Initially, they had asked me to just b do questions for, the, for Brian and Angus in New York, where they would... I would just interview them like you're doing to me right now and not be seen because they wanted them to kind of be hosting the day. So you'd only see them giving my answers as if they were talking to the audience. 
So I said, yeah, of course, you know, I'd be happy to do that. And then one of my co-hosts, Jim Florentine, brought up a good point. He's like, well, we got ACDC here. They're not in town when we're shooting our show. But we, you know, ACDC, we have to have them in the show. The, uh, the concept with that metal show that I based was always kind of built off of the best damn sports show meets the view for hard rock and metal. Hmm. So it was. it's really important that we have the artist on the set with us. Right. We want that dynamic. We want the energy of the artist there with the studio audience. But for ACDC, you make the exception. You do whatever you have to do. Right. And we we did that. And Jim brought up a great point. He said, we we, we got to do an interview with them. So what if it's a piece that we bring into the show? We have to have it. And we did. So we sat down and uh, Jim and I did our interview with Angus and Brian. And, you know, the nature of this TV show, it's not, it's not the probing, comprehensive interview that I'm used to doing and like to do. It's more of the ball busting, loose, let's have fun and tossing right. around a little right. bit interview. We had fun with those guys. It's, it's very easy to do that. They don't take themselves too seriously. We had a great time. We goof around and, uh, we got what we needed for our purposes. And then they had a run. So VH1 proper or, you know, didn't get, the, I don't think the degree of time they wanted, but we got what we wanted for our show, so it worked out pretty good. The one thing I've noticed over the years, and I've had the privilege of meeting the boys a few times, is that going deep with these guys usually ain't going to happen. They do not go into the serious answers, which is kind of their MO. What's your experience with that? Yeah, it is hard. You don't, they're not a, you know they're not a they're not a cerebral bunch you know <laughs> and i mean that with all respect i'm not dissing them at all but it it's you know you're not going to get you know that sort of thing from them that's not what acdc is about i mean they they it's just a, there's something about those guys and it goes to their persona and it goes to talking to them and interviewing them it goes to their music it goes to on stage it goes to their merchandise it goes to the way they connect with their fans it's just they're just fun. It's just cool. It's just relaxed. It's just never heavy and uh, never seems to be an overlying amount of drama. Maybe it's because of where they're from. Maybe it's their background. Maybe it's just they, they realize how fortunate they are to, to have this kind of following they do. But it's great to talk to them. But as an interviewer, it's not the easiest thing no. because you're not going to get, you know, long answers. You're not going to get anything in depth. You know, they're, they're, they're going to just start cackling about something. It could be a little bit hard to understand them <laughs> at times, to be yep. totally honest with you. You know, they'll, they'll use some phrasings and some slang that, to me, isn't – they'll have to explain sometimes, so you know what the heck they're <laughs> talking about. Let's talk about Stephen King for a minute. I grew up in Maine, so did he. I would run into Stephen King from time to time at, at book signings. And um, knowing that he was a tremendous ACDC fan, I would trade rare tracks with him. So when he decided to reach out to ACDC, when he was putting together his film Maximum Overdrive, um, I was kind of tickled because here's two of my favorite things coming together, like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. He actually coerced them into going back down on the Bahamas and recording some new stuff. Um, what was your whole take on that um, marriage of Stephen King and ACDC? I thought it was cool that a guy like Stephen King, who is uh, such a revered writer and 
you know, celebrity in his own world, it was so public about his love of ACDC. I mean, I think that was, I thought that was really, really cool. And it just shows the diverse type of people that ACDC have touched with their music. And, uh, you know, I think that it was a really, really cool thing that a guy like that came out and said that and showed his support for the band like that. So you go from someone like Stephen King, one of the most prolific writers in the world, to someone like Mike Judge, who's the creator of Beavis and Budhead on the other end of the spectrum, who's also professed his love for ACDC and who has admitted that the theme song for Beavis and Butthead was totally inspired by ACDC. Not to mention that the main character, Butthead, is donning an ACDC shirt. Um, when I first saw that, I, I thought to myself, oh, okay, uh, Mike Judge feels like anyone wearing this T-shirt probably is an idiot. I looked at the Beavis and Butthead situation completely different. I think that the two, the two cool guys that, that were like the hip guys, at least to them in the show, were ACDC and Metallica, two bands that have c tremendous credibility and respect for ages with rock fans. The nerdy, geeky guy wore the winger shirt, very unfairly, I might add. And I've been told in my new TV show, by the way, that I'm Stuart and the other two guys are Beavis and Butthead. So, you know the dynamic. I can respect that dynamic. But um, I looked at it as, here's the two guys wearing the coolest of cool bands of all time. And the, the, the geek were in the geekiest of geek bands, at least portrayed in the show at that time. Yeah. So I looked at it as a huge credit to ACDC that it was, they were re regarded as, you know, the ultimate cool band. But not cool enough for the Grammys or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or even the cover of Rolling Stone. And I know this is going to touch a nerve with you, Eddie, but it took years for these institutions to finally come around to see the light when it comes to ACDC. Your thoughts? Look, Rolling Stone, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Grammys, they are never gonna get it when it comes to bands like ACDC and others. And even when they do get it, they don't get it. ACDC, to not go in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the first year they were eligible is absurd beyond all comprehension. So I have no respect whatsoever for that institution and that elitist rock mentality. You, my friend, are preaching to the choir. Well, thank you, Eddie, for joining us here on ACDC Beyond the Thunder podcast. It was great to have you. As you know, ACDC has been a part of my fabric since I was 10 years old. The hard part to explain to anybody who's not a fan of ACDC is why one would be so infatuated with this band. In your own words, how would you describe what makes ACDC so special? What's so magic about this band? You know, I've interviewed so many bands in my life, and it's, you know, things have to be a certain way. That light has to be like this. They're cranky. I, I won't drink that brand of spring water. Bring me the other. Talk to them if you want to do this all this garbage that comes with that. And, you know, just the last time I saw the guys, here we are, they're just dead tired from running nonstop. I saw the interview schedule. Globally, they're one of the biggest bands in the world on a global level. Black Ice, 29 countries entered number one on the charts. I mean, it's unheard of. And um, 
come in, just great guys, just, you know, hey, mate, how you doing? And, you know, do you need anything? And, you know, you know, people in the crews, yeah, I'll sign whatever you yeah, take a picture, come on, you know. It's amazing. I mean, to be at that level and doing it as long as they've had and to have that disposition with both people in the industry and the fans is just phenomenal and says everything about them. That brings out of someone like me uh, an equal level of respect to the music that they've made. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 and that's the one, two punch of ACDC timeless music that will go on long after we're all gone. And, uh, and the actual just unbelievable, um, connection and credibility and real approach they have to stuff. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the most respected voices in rock, hard rock and heavy metal, Mr. Eddie Trunk. Eddie, we like to finish the show with one final question, and that is, if you had to describe ACDC in one word, just one word, what would that be? Real. ACDC Beyond the Thunder theme song, Trailer Trash, written and performed by Gannon Arnold. VO Talent by Bruce Jacobson. Cinematography and sound recording by Greg Ferguson. Edited and mixed by Eric Keel. Brand ambassador and marketing guru Gino Bona. Written, directed, and hosted by Kurt Squires. Produced by Gino Bona, Greg Ferguson, Eric Keel, and Kurt Squires. ACDC Beyond the Thunder is a Squires LLC current motion production. Copyright Beyond the Thunder podcast. All rights reserved. This has been a Nat Attack presentation. Shazbot. Nanu, nanu.